Welcome to another episode of Tell Me Another, a podcast dedicated to telling great stories from the past. Stories of genius and folly, compassion and cruelty. Instead of sitting around a campfire telling stories of our ancestors, we are coming to you from the History Department of the U.S. Naval Academy located in Annapolis, Maryland. We are coming with stories to tell and we hope you will listen. With us today in the studio are three co-hosts, Associate Professors Matthew Janique and Thomas Burgess, and Nicholas Mishukanis, a PhD candidate at the University of Maryland. Nicholas will be narrating the remarkable story of Germany's attempts in the First World War to incite a jihad against the British in India. Many listeners are aware of the dramatic story of the German military shipping Vladimir Lenin off to Petrograd in hopes of knocking Tsarist Russia out of the First World War. What some may not be aware of, however, is that this was not the only German attempt to shuttle politicians and diplomats so as to change the course of the war. Perhaps most remarkable was the German effort to incite a jihad in Afghanistan against British forces in India. This mission lasted from 1915 to 1916 and required two German diplomats, Oskar Niedermeyer and Werner Otto von Hentig, to travel from Berlin to Kabul in hopes of winning over Amir Habibullah Khan to Germany's cause. While the effort ultimately failed, it had serious ramifications for Afghanistan and demonstrated that ideas and religion were powerful weapons in the Kaiser's quest to win the First World War. The Kaiser's interest in getting the Emir of Afghanistan to launch a jihad was actually part of a larger and calculated effort to project himself as a friend of Islam. As early as 1898, he traveled to Damascus and gave a speech at the tomb of Saladin, a military hero of Muslim forces during the Crusades. The Kaiser stated, may the Ottoman Sultan rest assured, and also the 300 million Mohammedans scattered over the globe and revering in him their caliph, that the German emperor will be and remain at all times their friend. Throughout his state visits to the Ottoman Empire, the Kaiser took great efforts to immerse himself in Muslim traditions and to learn about the military history of the Islamic faith. By the end of his trip, the Kaiser wrote to his cousin, Tsar Nicholas II, if I had come there without any religion at all, I certainly would have returned Mohammedan. With the outbreak of World War I, Ottoman leadership at first declared neutrality, but by the fall of 1914 had joined Germany and the Central Powers. In doing so, the Ottoman government sought to capitalize on its religious influence. Sultan Mehmed V declared a formal jihad and named the French, British, and Russian armies as infidels. Muslims within the Ottoman Empire were now tasked with a religious obligation to take up arms against them. Upon hearing the news, the German Kaiser and his Chancellor, Theobald von Bethmann-Holweg, sensed an opportunity to extend this jihad outside of the Ottoman Empire's borders and to divert Russian and British attention to the nation of Afghanistan. They turned to two men to carry out this operation, Werner Otto von Hentig and Oskar von Niedermeyer. Werner Otto von Hentig was born in 1886 to a middle-class family and eventually joined the German diplomatic service. He was assigned to embassies in China, Iran, and the Ottoman Empire and developed contacts in all of these countries. His fluency in Arabic and Persian gained him the attention of his superiors. Meanwhile, Oskar von Niedermeyer was born in 1885 and had a similar middle-class background. 
he joined the military and eventually petitioned the German army to fund a two-year expedition in which he traveled on foot through Persia and northern India, sketching maps of the terrain and paths available through the Karakoram Mountains. Niedermeyer had first-hand experience traversing the deserts and mountains that spanned the Middle East and Central Asia. By December 1914, the Kaiser's plan to incite a jihad was finalized. A small team of 20 men would travel by rail from Berlin to Baghdad and then proceed on to Kabul by foot. There they would appeal to Amir Habibullah Khan to declare war on the Allied powers. The German Foreign Office gave Hentig diplomatic powers to negotiate terms and provided up to a thousand pounds sterling in gold reserves. He was instructed to present an extensive caravan of gifts to the Emir and to promise recognition of the Emir's independence from British control. What I find so fascinating about this part of the episode is the, is the Kaiser's Eastern strategy. He uh, claims to be a friend and sympathizer to the Muslims. And I guess this goes back to a long tradition going back to the Middle Ages of Christian powers allying with Muslim powers when they deemed it convenient. I'm thinking of Francis I of France in the 16th century allying with the Ottomans against the Habsburgs. But the Kaiser wasn't just playing a game of realpolitik. He was claiming to be a sort of advocate of Muslim interests in, in world affairs. Is, is that a fair characterization? Yeah, I would say it is. Um, this is actually a bit of realpolitik um, in the sense that the Germans pursue this military alliance because everyone's aware of the German-Anglo naval race that develops. But the Kaiser also senses an opportunity that um, by the, the early 1900s, the Anglo-German naval race is not going in his favor and he needs to figure out a way to strike at the British. And the best way that him and his staff come up with this is to figure out a way to strike at India. And that's, that really is where the uh, Berlin-Baghdad road come into play and this opportunity to shift troops into the Middle East to upset the British order in India and, and their territories in that, in that part of the world. Fascinating. Yeah, and I, it's, it's obviously evident to everybody that the jewel in the crown of the British Empire is India, and India is what they're worried about. And they're not only worried from the point of view of uh, Russia to the north and the Great Game in, in Central Asia, but they're... they're Almost everything they do, as far flung as East Asia and and East Africa, is all bound up in this concern for India. Um, I was really interested in the Ottoman angle here, because there's been a lot of work recently on just how central the Ottoman Empire is to what's going on in the late 19th, early 20th century. Can you fill us in on, on the Ottoman context for this? They're not just sitting there waiting to be influenced by, you know, the latest in a long line of European rulers. Well, the Ottoman decision to join the Central Powers in the First World War is a bit of a tricky one for them. The Empire had closely aligned with the British and the French throughout the 1800s, but at the beginning of the 20th century, they find themselves in a bit of a rut. They fight a war with Italy over what is today Libya, and Italy uh, quickly seizes that territory, and the Ottomans are routed and embarrassed, and they need to figure out uh, how they can begin instituting major reforms, but they want protection from a major European power while they go through with this. And they send out some feelers across Europe, and the only nation that really responds is Russia, but the terms are they would become a Russian protectorate in all but name. And so that's out for the Ottomans. They can't accept those terms. And they can't 
uh, pair up with the French because the French are so closely aligned with the Russians at this point in time. And the British make it clear that um, they're not interested. It wouldn't be um, financially doable to continue funding them. And, and, and really, we know now that that was because the British are starting to divide up Ottoman territories in this part of the world. And so this leaves the Ottomans with the Germans. They had a long uh, economic uh, partnership together. And finally, in the beginning of the 20th century, we see that uh, partnership develop into a military military alliance along the way as uh, kind of necessary for their survival to keep going forward. Yeah, I think it's also interesting that the Young Turks were in a dominant position in Turkey at this time. Uh, and they were, you know, modernizers. They wanted Turkey to become sort of part of the so-called civilized world in, in their terms. Uh, at the same time, though, the Sultan is calling a jihad and they're resorting to this very traditional method of mobilizing people, people for war in a very pre-modern sense. It's an interesting juxtaposition there. This is also a really fascinating component of the Ottoman Empire because over the course of the 19th century, they're trying to figure out how to maintain a cohesive identity. And they flirt with ideas like Ottomanism and um, you know, other ideas to, uh, to make sure the empire doesn't break up and fracture up. And the Young Turks seize power in the beginning of the 20th century with this liberal constitution idea and a secular approach. And what they quickly realize is that they are struggling to keep the empire together. And so with the outbreak of the First World War, they're caught off guard and they need identity, uh, components of an identity to keep the empire together. And religion had been one of the recurring themes. And so they're more than happy with the outbreak of war to have the Sultan call for a jihad because this could be an easy way to um, level the playing field for everybody in the Ottoman Empire to rally around something to keep the empire together. And there's something in there as well that's really fascinating. You know, it's really easy to see religion as somehow uh, outdated or, or retreating under this kind of tidal wave of secularism and quote-unquote modernization. But a lot of what's happening in the 19th century is really kind of reifying and reaffirming religious identity, but, but seeing it reemerge into the political field as well. So obviously, you know, you've got the, the first modern jihad in, in Sudan in the 1880s or 1870s and 1880s. Um, and, and it looks like the Ottoman Empire is just kind of, in a sense, continuing that, you know, modernization is not inconsistent with, with reaffirming your, your religious principles. In this era, that's my that's my sense. From the outset, the expedition ran into problems. To get to Constantinople without attracting attention, it needed a cover story to explain why they were transporting such large amounts of arms and supplies. And so they claimed, rather ridiculously, that they were part of a traveling circus. Not surprisingly, officials of neutral Romania doubted the story of a traveling circus drifting through their territory in the midst of a war and investigated their supplies. Instead of circus costumes and equipment, they found weapons and radios, which they confiscated and publicized in all the newspapers. The British and the Russians were now aware that a large contingent of Germans were on the move towards the Middle East and equipped for war. Hentig and Niedermeyer eventually arrived in Constantinople, where the Ottoman Sultan provided them with a personal letter to the Emir, reminding him of his Muslim duty to wage jihad. The Turks also provided some supplies and officers to accompany the German caravan. 
Penting and Niedermayer were, however, informed that the British and Russians had caught wind of their plan, and they needed to take extreme caution when passing through Persia. While Persia had declared neutrality, the nation was divided up into Russian and British spheres of influence. Because the British and Russians had spies and police on the lookout for the expedition, Niedermayer made the decision that they should split up to avoid capture. As they traveled through Persia, wells and fresh water were scarce, so it was imperative to move quickly and at night to avoid succumbing to the desert. To reduce weight, Hentig ordered his caravan to bury his portion of the Kaiser's gifts to the emir. They also scouted ahead for British and Russian spies and provided false stories of having perished in the desert so as to deceive their pursuers. They created distractions so as to pass through the mountain paths undetected. Despite clearing the roads of British and Russian cavalry, the elements were just as dangerous. Niedermayer recorded temperatures of over 60 degrees Celsius, 143 degrees Fahrenheit, during the day, and many men suffered from broken bones after falling off their horses and camels from exhaustion, sickness, and dehydration. Many also suffered from venomous snake bites. Hentig recorded in his diary that one mountain pass was completely blocked by deadly snakes, which had to be cleared using sticks and whips. Still, Hentig and his team were horrified to awaken at 2 a.m. by an infestation of tarantulas. The caravan pounded the ground with sticks to simulate a rock slide and scare the spiders away. In their journey through the desert, demoralized Persian guides and Ottoman and German soldiers stole supplies and deserted the caravan. Still, Hentig and Niedermeyer pressed on, and by August 1915, they managed to elude the British and Russian lookouts and pass into Afghanistan. Approaching the city of Herat, they set up camp outside the city and plotted their next move. Though they feared the local governor would arrest him, he instead ordered a parade in their honor and invited them to stay in the emir's provincial palace. Hentig and Niedermayer produced the Ottoman Sultan's personalized letter, which impressed the governor enough to offer them guides and supplies for the onward 400-mile journey to Kabul. Finally, on October 2, 1915, after traveling for more than eight months across 4,000 miles, Hentig and Niedermayer arrived in the Afghan capital of Kabul. Though greeted with a massive parade and an Afghan honor guard, the Emir Habibullah Khan forbade them from leaving their quarters in his palace until his return to Kabul several weeks later. Hentig and Niedermayer were left to wonder if they were now the Emir's guests or his prisoners. This is just an incredible story of, of endurance albeit for somewhat nefarious ends. But what really gets me about this is, is the, the energy they put into this. They obviously expect something to happen in Afghanistan. And it just starts to get me thinking about Britain's relationship with Afghanistan, because, of course, Britain had already thought, fought two major wars in the 19th century in Afghanistan, had generally speaking, ultimately after a lot of defeats, installed or at least got their strategic way but it hadn't been an easy thing by any stretch of the imagination I, I can imagine British feeling somewhat uh, tender about Afghanistan and, and its relations so is that influencing the, the these Germans to you know is history a, a, a real motivator for them there I think absolutely it is in this case 
the Germans, I mean, Niedermayer had, had been on expeditions through Persia, so he knew the history of the region, knew the tensions that existed in Persia and Afghanistan towards uh, encroaching British and Russian forces. And so I think the Germans know the history of the region, but by no means are they specialists in understanding the culture or anything. I think they just suspect the tensions there will be enough to get the emir to join their side without thinking about what are the real implications at, at hand here. And that's the other thing. It, it's this like orientalist gaze. It, it's this lens that cover, colors everything that they see through. And as they're looking through this orientalist lens, of course, what they're doing is they're getting the information they think they want out of it irregardless of how uh, uh, inaccurate and potentially damaging it is. And this is, I mean, this is, this is common for the Germans, obviously, in 1914, 1915, but it's also, the, the British are at it as well. Uh, I mean, those two Anglo-Afghan wars in the 19th century are just wonderful examples of completely misunderstanding local context. Um, I mean, in the first Anglo-Afghan war, the British try and install a ruler who had not been in Afghanistan for pretty much 40 years, and they think he's just going to be welcomed with open arms. No, and you see that with the Germans' approach, too. I mean, they know that there's a jihad, and that's pretty much, they assume that all Muslims must respond to jihad the same. They have no idea about the different religious schools that exist outside of the Ottoman Empire. And so um, you can absolutely see this um, Orientalism clouding their vision in the sense of, well, if we show up with a letter for jihad, they must join us without understanding the, the nuance uh, in Afghanistan. Yeah, this seems like a German version of Lawrence of Arabia, who incited rebellion against the Ottomans in World War One, And on one level, you know, Lawrence is now thought of as something of a hero, but, and we were, maybe are inclined to think of these two Germans as also heroic. They're defying the elements to make this epic quest into Central Asia, and yet a quest to incite a war and to manipulate people's religious sensibilities to perpetrate extreme violence. So it, it's kind of, an, they're anti-heroes or something like that. How would you respond? Well, it's, it's interesting how they both recount the expedition when they come back in the post-war period. Uh, obviously, because they, they don't succeed, this isn't really regarded as a huge diplomatic coup in, in the Weimar Republic years in the 1920s. But actually, Niedermayer tries to portray himself as a German version of Lawrence of Arabia. And had they had more time and had things worked out, they really could have turned the course of the war. And Hentig uh, actually comes back and says, these were a lot of failed efforts. This really wasn't worth it. Um, this is really isn't anything that's worth commending or anything, despite both of them receiving military awards and medals when they return. So it's fascinating how we see the memory of this journey change. You know, the army gets very oriented towards trying this again in the Second World War because Niedermeyer has a lasting influence on them and the diplomatic corps is not very interested in trying this again afterwards. After weeks of waiting, Hentig and Niedermeyer were picked up in a convoy of Rolls Royces and brought to the emirs a mountain retreat outside of Kabul. When they arrived in the emir's throne room, they presented their letters from the Kaiser and the Ottoman Sultan, as well as the gifts they'd managed to retain on their journey through the desert. Despite a warm reception, the emir explained that Afghanistan was squarely located between the Russian and British empires and lacked a strong military and financial stability to wage war. And yet, 
Though the British were providing him subsidies to remain neutral, he was open to negotiating a new deal. The Germans would be the personal guests of the emir and free to travel around Kabul. For Hentig and Niedermayer, it was clear the emir was far more politically cunning than they had anticipated. Ever since assuming power in 1901, Amir Habibullah Khan had set out to import Western advisors, teachers, and technology. He signed a treaty of friendship with the British in 1905, and two years later made a state visit to India, where the British offered him an annual allowance for maintaining his neutrality. Such moves provoked tensions between the Amir and his brother Nasrullah. However, Nasrullah was much less sympathetic to the British and felt his brother was submitting Afghanistan to eventual British rule if he continued taking their money. Nasrullah was also a devout Muslim, and upon hearing about the declaration of jihad, believed Afghanistan had a religious obligation to wage war. He therefore conspired with Hentig and Niedermayer to try and pressure the emir to declare war. He put them in touch with one of the only newspaper editors in Kabul, Mahmoud Tarzi, who was famously anti-British and believed the arrival of Hentig and Niedermayer was a divine sign that Afghanistan's fate lay in joining the German-Ottoman alliance. Members of the German team also spread rumors that the Ottoman Sultan had an army marching to aid Afghanistan, and that all the Emir needed to do was publicly declare war and the British army in India would collapse. Tribes along the British-Afghan border posted flyers and war flags and were eager for conflict. In November 1915, Hentig and Niedermayer were welcomed again to the Emir's royal palace for negotiations. The meeting lasted eight hours. Hentig argued that the Central Powers were on the verge of victory and would be capable of offering Afghanistan support. The Germans had inflicted huge casualties on the French, Russian, and British forces, and the Ottomans, for their part, had defeated the Allies at Gallipoli and even forced the surrender of a British army in Iraq. And yet the emir had also received updates from his British contacts and been assured that the Allies would soon recapture the initiative. The emir decided to ally with the Germans if they agreed to offer an even larger allowance to him personally, provided the arms necessary to modernize Afghanistan's army of 50,000 soldiers, and provided either a German or Ottoman division in the proposed assault on India's northern border. Hentig and Niedermayer recognized that such terms would be impossible to meet. A German or Ottoman division, plus tens of thousands of weapons, would require a huge amount of logistical support and could not pass through neutral Persia regardless. In relaying these terms to Berlin, Hentig stated that, quote, perhaps we shall find it necessary to begin by organizing a coup d'etat, end quote. Thus, as 1915 drew to a close, the Germans were now considering a potential political assassination in order to draw Afghanistan into the war on their side. The British and Russians managed to decode these messages and send them on to the emir. Yeah, that takes a lot of chutzpah to imagine assassinating your, your host who's been so hospitable towards you until this time. That's kind of remarkable. Um, but I want to point out something by way of context, which is that the Germans by this time had thought of this war as a war of attrition, to wear down the other side to eventually give up and surrender to the German war machine. And by this time, they had an outstanding example of this sort of strategy in East Africa, where uh, the German general Paul von Leto Forbeck, with only 14,000 soldiers, had managed to tie down 300,000 Allied soldiers for years. 
in fact, would not even surrender until he received news from Europe of the armistice in late 1918. So this is, I'm sure the Germans were thinking, if we can produce something like this in Central Asia, this would be fantastic. No, I think absolutely. I think that the Germans at this point by 1916 are also starting to feel the effects of the blockade that the Allied powers have put into place. And I think at this point, we're also starting to see desperation set in, these ideas of jihad or diverting troops in Africa. And really, we're starting to see more and more kind of almost Hail Mary fantastic options as opposed to the traditional methods that they were using at this time to try to win the war. That's really interesting. At the same time, there's there's always the risk of kind of uh, looking back on history from the perspective of the president. We, we know what happens. We know what happens in November 1918. Um, there are maybe grounds for, you know, seeing... I, I wonder what you think. There are maybe grounds for seeing this less as Hail Mary and, and more as just an evolving German strategy. The British... Uh, in India by this point um, are dealing with an increasingly resentful population. Um, the, the, the Ghadar movement that is established in, uh, in actually the Western United States um, in this period um, is shipping arms into India in the hopes of generating a rebellion. And there is actually a mutiny uh, in the Indian army um, as, as far away as Singapore, but also in, in Punjab uh, at this period. Now, it's, it's brutally crushed and it doesn't spread very far. But there are maybe grounds where the Germans are thinking, hey, this, this, you know, just like von Leta Vorbeck, um, this is possible. Well, and I also, as I alluded to in the first part, I mean, the most famous example of this is with Vladimir Lenin. This is almost, you know, they're trying these ideas of exchanging, you know, maybe if they can't win the war on the battlefield, they can win it politically. They can remove leadership or, or divert attention elsewhere. And so yeah, I do think there is a component here where um, trying different things, seeing what works and looking at the context might be the key to winning the war for them. Yeah, and in that case, the Lenin uh, strategy was spectacularly successful. I mean, that was... Remarkable! They knocked Russia out of the war because of his presence. Bread, peace, and land, right? Despite reports of German treachery and desires to overthrow him if necessary, the emir invited Hentig and Niedermayer to his palace to negotiate a treaty of trade and friendship. He recognized the need to keep his options open for as long as possible. If the British and Russians lost the First World War, his financial support would vanish, and his brother might try and overthrow him. Furthermore, a curious episode convinced him of the British Empire's desperation. A lone traveler arrived in Afghanistan, claiming to be a German diplomat ordered to send Hentig and Niedermayer back to Germany. He reported that Germany and the Ottomans were losing the war. This man's credentials were in German, but Hentig and Niedermeyer noticed odd phrasing and misspellings and deduced that this man was an imposter. When arrested, he revealed that he was a British spy sent to disrupt the German-Afghan negotiations. And so, in January 1916, Habibullah and Hentig signed a treaty of friendship, as well as a deal in which Hentig vowed the Germans would provide him 100,000 modern rifles and 300 artillery pieces. Upon receiving these weapons, the emir pledged to declare war on the Allies, but not until. 
and in his effort to play for time, the emir refused to recognize these treaties as binding until the Kaiser signed them himself, a process that would take several months or more. Meanwhile, the emir also affirmed his neutrality to the British in India and waited to see how the war would play out. In the spring of 1916, Ottoman armies in the Middle East began to lose ground to the British, and Hentig and Niedermeyer grew anxious that they would not be able to make it back to Germany without being captured. The two men were divided on how to proceed. Niedermeyer believed that the emir was simply playing for time and that the best option was to leave Kabul while a land route was still open. Hentig, however, still held out hope that the emir could be convinced and wanted to stay in Kabul. After weeks of deliberating, in late May 1916, the German duo agreed to commence their journey back to Berlin after giving up hope of inciting a jihad against the British. Their journey home was just as dramatic as that of the previous year. Wanting to elude British and Russian spies, they decided to try and navigate through the Himalayas and then backtrack through the mountains into Persia. This required passing through parts of the Russian Empire, and only five days outside of Kabul, their convoy was ambushed by Russian cavalry. Separated from one another, the two men took drastically different routes back to Germany. Niedermeyer and his convoy managed to make it through Persia to Ottoman territory before the Ottoman front collapsed altogether in late 1917. Hentig, however, took a much longer route. He and his team traversed the Himalayas until finding themselves eventually in China. After discovering their location, Henting decided the best course was to trek on to the Chinese coast, sail for Japan, and from there, sail on to neutral Mexico or the United States. From there, they could somehow make their way back to Germany. Dodging questions about their true identity, Hentig and his team made it all the way to Honolulu, Hawaii, where to their shock, they heard the news that the United States had only days before declared war on Germany. Captured by American officials and sent to San Francisco for questioning, Henting disclosed who he was and the purpose of his mission. At first, American officials could not believe such a tall tale. But they nevertheless, and shockingly so, allowed Hentig to depart with the staff of the German consulate in San Francisco. By the autumn of 1917, Hentig was back in Berlin, recounting his travels to his superiors. Back in Afghanistan, the emir received news of the defeat of Germany and the Ottomans in late 1918, which vindicated his decision to stay neutral. Nevertheless, on a hunting trip a few months later, the emir was assassinated by conservative and religious forces. In the political chaos that followed, his brother Nasrullah claimed the throne, but only managed to retain control for a week. Aminullah Khan, the son of the assassinated emir, quickly rallied support and had his uncle tried and imprisoned. The new emir then sought to shore up support with religious conservatives and the military by declaring war on the British in May 1919. After a few brief border skirmishes, the British government, exhausted from the First World War, agreed to recognize Afghanistan's independence. As an interesting postscript to this remarkable story, Amir Aminullah pursued close relations with the newly established German Weimar Republic. He opened Afghanistan to German businesses and even established the von Hentig Fellowship in honor of the expedition. In 2016, Germany and Afghanistan celebrated 100 years of diplomatic relations, going all the way back to the fascinating yet failed efforts of Hentig and Niedermeyer to win the First World War. I love the image of von Hentig showing up in Honolulu after having traveled halfway across the world only to find out he's now in hostile territory when he thought, 
America was still neutral in this war. I'm sure the Americans were just mystified by this stranger from the East who spoke German and claimed this incredible story of having just been in Afghanistan. So I think really what's important to ask here is the so what question. Um, what do we learn about uh, Afghani politics? What were the consequences of the German intervention here on Afghanistan itself? So maybe we can say that German efforts to incite a jihad put the emir in such an impossible position that even though he played for time and was an astute, remarkable political operator, he ended up losing his life because of the feelings the Germans had aroused in his country. Is that a fair characterization? Or Absolutely. I think that looking back, I mean, history is always looking back, but the Germans showed up, um, and in doing so, in 1916, their arrival essentially sets the political battle lines between the nationalists, the more liberal approach to open to inviting advisors to, to help Afghanistan, and then the uh, religious conservatives. And what the nationalists and religious conservatives learn is that they could have a, a common ally in the emir's brother Nasrullah or the emir's son. And so I think them arriving and essentially stirring the pot sets in a series of events that result in the emir's death. And of course you've got the uh, the Anglo-Afghan war, uh, the third war which you mentioned there. Um, the British, you're right, are, are just completely exhausted by the war. But actually, funnily enough, yet again, they kind of get what they need in a sense out of that war. The, you know, the confirmation of the Durand line um, as being Afghanistan's, you know, the, the border between the Raj uh, and Afghanistan is, is kind of settled. The British no longer have control over the foreign policy of Afghanistan. But at this point here, Britain is really starting to look over its shoulder very much um, at the United States and the United States influence. So it's, it, it's fascinating. I'm, I'm really struck with the cynical confidence of almost everybody involved here. Uh, British, German, um, their ability to kind of play the world in ways that are going to you know, advantage them. Um, is this simply a product of that kind of 19th century uh, sense of, 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 let's be honest, racial superiority, the, this deluded sense of racial superiority? Or what's going on? Is it just empire at its height? Yeah, I, I really think that it's a mix of those things, empire at its height and this almost kind of this belief in their their concept of, you know, Deutschkultur, the idea that they're superior and that, um, you know, the Afghans would be so happy to join an alliance with them. And really it reveals, like you said, the cynical nature of them. I mean, in reality, by 1916, there's no way that the German high command could spare a division or all these rifles or artillery pieces. And and yet um, we see that Hentig and Niedermeyer are more than happy to sign on to this in hopes of diverting these troops. So it's really an empty promise, do whatever they need to in order to win the war. And I think it absolutely reflects the cynical nature uh, that the war has brought and also the complex of superiority that the Germans believe they have. And it's all—it's it, something that that we talk about in classes with midshipmen quite a lot about the legacies of these types of cynical interventions, because of course, the legacies of these are often uh, a very cynical response on the part of people who who feel like they are being misled, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. and rightfully so. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. When I find it just fascinating that 
the relationship that develops between Afghanistan and Germany. Um, I mean, Af Afghan leadership realizes that uh, with the British to the south and after the First World War, the Soviet Union to its north, they're still pretty nervous and are very eager to invite Germans to invest in, Afghan econ in the Afghan economy and other stuff to try to provide a counterbalance because it's either domination by the Soviets or the British and they're trying to find a third way here. Thank you for tuning in to our latest episode of Tell Me Another. From Nicholas Mishukanis, Matthew Janik, and myself, we hope you liked what you heard and will join us next time. This has been a production of the History Department at the U.S. Naval Academy located in Annapolis, Maryland. If you enjoy our programs, please let us know as we'd love to hear your thoughts. You can reach us on Twitter and Instagram at USNA History, and our email is historyproductions-group at usna.edu. For more information about the History Department at the Naval Academy, please visit usna.edu history.